Hello, folks. It's Jeremy Kirkland. You're listening to Blamo. You know, the place where you get good news in the world of bad news. <laughs> this is a heavy week. Look, let's be honest, man. I, I feel like I feel like life is throwing punches underwater. I mean, it's it's just strange. It's frustrating for so many people. Um, and it's like, man, how do, how do we find peace when all we have is anger? Like, and, and what does peace even mean in 2022? Like, honestly, I, I, I really wrestle with this. Um, and th- this is a real segue here I'm about to make. For me, I continue to find peace in music. Music has been pushing and shaping culture for as long as I can remember. And obviously, way before I existed, from, you know, the beauty of blues, of like the Library of Congress recordings of Mississippi John Hurt, to Bob Dylan. I mean, look, I mean, and everyone, right? Like musicians are icons. They're political icons, they're fashion icons, but they're our therapists. They're making these one-way conversations with their music that turn into two-way battle cries. Someone who has shaped my love of music and a musician I put on to help me process life is my guest this week, for real, Andrew Bird. His music is rich, it's challenging, it's peaceful and meditative. He's released 16 studio albums, which I actually had to double check as I was writing this down. I was like, holy cow. Uh, but in, in many ways, he's been the soundtrack of my entire life. We, we chat his recent album, Inside Problems, his sleep routine, going full David Bowie, entering the acting world in Fargo, and his fashion progression from Buster Brown to Bohemian. And last but not least, finally turning to the well-tailored basics of the high fashion world. This was a great interview, and we go all over the map, and I was so glad that I got to chat with him. Why don't we jump in? Let's go. Mr. Andrew Bird, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. It's, it's a huge pleasure to chat with you. So I listened to the album. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. Thank I you. will say, you set the bar pretty high from Finest Work. I mean, and it's, 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 it's incredible. But like, you know, to just jump right in to this thing and... And I'll say this because a lot of people can already, you know, you've done pods before, you've done interviews before, mm. you know, we don't need to establish like, oh, you're from Chicago and you've been playing since you yeah. were, you know, little. Um, how was, what was the like, what was the recording process like for this album? Because, I mean, the big thing is, from what I had read, you, you guys recorded and made this entire record in person. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it was, we rehearsed a lot because we were waiting for everyone to get vaccinated and, and to get the all clear. So we had, I was working with Mike Viola, uh, it's a producer who I did the Jimbo Mathis duo record with. And I liked, I liked what he did. It, his ethos fits with mine of, of live recording and, and not being too fussy, not too many overdubs uh, or effects. And so he booked uh, United, the B room at United Audio in, um, yeah. in Hollywood, which is a classic room, you know, that... Uh, pretty storied place you there's photos of sinatra and dean martin with orchestras you know in the in that room and uh we so we had january of last year we started rehearsing every week and then adding the band in and i don't usually rehearse that much before i go in the studio but uh or in general um i don't really why is that i just don't enjoy jamming I mean, really? Not really. Your like your music, and I mean this in the most loving, respectful way, is like the most like fluid jamming, sort of like beautiful, yeah, impromptu, like, spontaneous music. <laughs> I mean, I sure I like playing with people, but I like doing it on stage. Um, uh-huh. 
And the rehearsal process, I feel, is more like teaching. And teaching has you kind of um, contorted, trying to will everyone into, like you're, you're trying to both sing and listen and scrutinize what everyone's playing at the same time. And yeah. that, that is, I find exhausting and, and like not fun as opposed to just <laughs> going up there and just, you know, getting, feeling connected with everyone and, and performing. So I used to just go out there into, into the studio or on stage with absolute, like minimal rehearsal for better or worse. Um, I've figured, oh, we're all, we're all good musicians. We can make it. It'll be fine. Yeah. Um, but this time we had, we had the time, the songs were ready and, but we couldn't go into the studio yet, um, cause of COVID. So we just got together a couple times a week for, for a couple months, which was really nice. Um, yeah. and then we only booked 10 days at United. First of all, it's, crazy expensive yeah i was gonna say that's that's not cheap <laughs> um but 10 days is pretty quick to like try to track a whole album and uh so it was just two five-day sessions and uh but you know the first day we got there and by noon you know we're recording to tape and there's four of us uh sitting like i'm like five feet away from the drummer facing the drummer a browns mm -hmm. alan hampton's on my right on upright or electric and Mike was just playing acoustic on the left and we're all facing each other. I worked with my longtime engineer, David Boucher, who just understands what I do and that I like to like just get in there and start tracking right away, not not spending several days getting a drum sound, that kind of process. So um and by noon we had the first song tracked and it sounded amazing. Like it was just everything was you know, the way I've been recording the last, especially the last two records is really embracing the the bleed between microphones and between, we're all so close to each other that, that you know, you can't replace the vocal and you have to go with the live vocal because there's some- Oh shit, you're not doing your vocals separately? No, only in a rare case when, uh, so what we do is is we do the the live take and then we have to do an instrumental because everyone needs an instrumental now for licensing. So we have to do an actual- we can't you gotta just, get those syncs, my man. No, I know, but you can't just <laughs> mute the vocal like most people do, right? Because the right, vocal fair. is is in all the microphones, so we have to do a whole another instrumental take. And if for some reason we have some problem with the original, the live take, then I can go and overdub a vocal on the instrumental. Okay, so it's it's kind of like a safety, which I did on one tune, but I really don't like overdubbing vocals because it feels like karaoke to me it doesn't feel it feels detached and and you know that's just generally like what i've learned gets the best results is like get in and out quick make it feel like a performance and get out of there before you forget who you are and what you do before you forget who you are that's an interesting i find explanation. that well the process of recording is so uh judgmental of yourself of you're listening okay. back to things yeah. You know, you're, you're listening back and you're scrutinizing. You're saying, I don't like the way I did this. I don't like the way I did that. And then your mindset switches from a performance mindset to this sort of, um, uh, as soon you find yourself pretty far away from what it feels like to be on stage. Right. And when I'm on stage, I understand I can only, I have no choice but to be myself. When I'm in the studio, the longer I'm in the studio, the more I drift or potentially drift from my original intentions. Right. Do you consider yourself a perfectionist? Well, um, not in this. I, if I were a perfectionist, I wouldn't be cool with this this way of recording. You know. Okay. It if 
if I weren't cool with the things being a little lumpy and lopsided and tempo shifting and, but it depends on if, what you mean by perfectionist. It's, if it's things that are perfectly, things have to be perfectly wrong, <laughs> then yes, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's like quantizing is the enemy now for modern recording, in my opinion. I agree. Like, and especially with music like yours, which I think, and we'll, we'll discuss this a little bit more in a bit, where I, I would associate your music more as energy mm-hmm. versus, um, and, and an experience, obviously, versus like something that's just on. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like, so. I have, I've put on, you know, Andrew Bird albums and listened to them start to finish, like sitting, you know, one of the things I did over COVID was, um, I was like, oh man, it's been a while since I've listened to a record from like beginning to end, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, I'm going to listen to Blood on the Tracks from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And like my head exploded. Yeah. I mean, it, it's especially now where we're in this era of 15 second bites and little syncs and 60 second little, you know, your music is something that for me is always begged to be experienced. And because of that, because it's not like a jingle, I'm air quoting, um, there's just more of an energy behind it. And I think, you know, I, I like hearing where it sounds like maybe somebody slid on the on their fret a little bit far or the, yeah. the, the slight little pop or, you know. Like that, that for me, like helps shape the energy of what I'm listening to. Yeah. I, I feel like it gives it weight and value and my favorite recordings have that quality to it, you know? Um, and uh, it's, I think just when the few times I've recorded a song, one track at a time in the last few years, uh, it's shelf life is a lot shorter than the ones that were recorded live as far as how much uh I enjoy hearing it or think back to how that was created. I'm like, eh, yeah, it's just not, it, it's more pristine and it's more hi-fi and it makes me, makes you sound more awesome <laughs> to do everything that <laughs> separately. But it's, it's, it's more, it sounds like architecture, not, not like music sometimes. Has that evolved in your career as a musician? Because I mean, you've, you've been playing music for, for, you know, a significant amount of time. I mean, I don't know. What is it like? Twenty years? Yeah. Uh, tw- I mean, I've been making records since I was nineteen, so uh, t- t- twenty-seven or eight years, something like that. Okay. Um, no, the first albums we made were uh, were were quite a bit like this, even more extreme. Uh, as far as this is like bull of fire stuff. Yeah. Though, right? So that was yeah. like you know the bass player was standing on a coffee table to get the f holes closer to the RCA forty-four ribbon Hell mic yeah. that. <laughs> that we're all around and trying to mix the album by where we are around one microphone. So that right. that was that was extreme, but you know, they're absolutely those records are totally impossible to replicate, you know. To Isn't that great? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 a cool thing. Um and then, you know, as I got in the middle area of the from like Swimming Hour to Mysterious Production of Eggs, I was getting more into um production and layering and right you know co- more complex arrangements um yeah with to me and uh, varying dis- degrees of success i learned a lot from those those uh those days but um yeah i listen to like mysterious production of eggs now and i'm like it sounds so mild that's a masterpiece are you kidding me but i mean as far as like a uh a visceral performance it's not exactly it's pretty, mm. the vocals are pretty head voice and subdued. 
I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's like hey, it's your album. Yeah, it, there was <laughs> it's a my lo- memories, but it's your album. That's fine. <laughs> there was a, no, there was a lot of uh, redos and suffer. You know, there's a lot of suffering went into creating that. I scrapped the whole album twice, mixed and and but that was a lot of time in the studio, and I definitely got. I was definitely tone, uh, tuning my voice and all my instruments to what was sounding good coming back through the speakers, not through right. what. Uh, what was true to what I am on stage, you know? You went full Lindsey Buckingham. In what sense? And acts in the album twice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, totally mixed, ready to master. Nope, that's not it. In, <laughs> in the garbage. And Wait, what label were you on at this time? Were they like, are you kidding? <laughs> I was on, that record was on Righteous Babe, but I think I was making it before I was on Righteous okay. Babe. So yeah. I've always just self-financed all my albums. So no one's, well, no one's like saying, you know, where's, where's the album? Yeah. I imagine that served you quite well, especially in regards to publishing and. Yeah, I know that's been good. And also just not, you know, A&R guys saying, I don't hear a single, you know, that, that I don't, I haven't had too many of those conversations, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to call out as I was, I mean, I've been a fan of you, but also, you know, as I was doing some additional research for this chat. Like many musicians, you jumped on social media during like the COVID era. Mm. I mean, now you had had presence on it before, mm. but you were doing these like sort of live impromptu songs, which were beautiful. Mm. But the biggest thing that blew my mind is one, a lot of musicians were doing this, mm. but I don't think anyone had the comments and the uh, affinity for for you, I mean, it was, it was mind blowing. Like this is an example and this is just stuff like I had scraped from reading, you know, Mm -hmm. you playing a song, your music heals my soul. Your music has warmed and soothed my soul for over 15 years. Thank you. Two different comments. Mm -hmm. Your versions of the song always make me tear up. Keep getting a handle on this one for as long as you like. You're an inspiration. I can go, like, I have 20 of these. Right. Like, why do you feel that people like have such a deep connection like this is very emotional um i don't know if i'm the one to answer that but um as far as like the social media goes i'm generally been arm's length about it um but the few things i've done like the the live from the great room thing where we were just using facebook live as like a broadcast signal for a tv show in my living room um that to this the pandemic uh you know i've i've always thought that um in the, I'm just going to use it to do what I know how to do because it's like useful to people. You know, this is some. This is what I have to offer. I'm not going to show you what I had for breakfast or like. <laughs> um, I I would actually love to know what you had for breakfast, but that's okay. Yeah, but it's, it's <laughs> like this is the thing that I know how to do that 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 I think is should be in, might be interesting to people and and to get up in the morning and have your coffee and then just go out and um very unfussily record a song um kind of kept me sane yeah during that time because it wasn't quite scratching the itch that i was used to of performing and touring but it was club you know it was something and it's kind of nice to do it after breakfast instead of at, at rock time so <laughs> yeah uh and feel like you'd done something that on that blank slate of a day you know when you're just in lockdown so you know and i feel like um you know, to just uh, use your musicianship on a daily basis and have an outlet for it is is a nice thing. It's there's messed up things about it, like 
first of all, you're looking at your own image as you're performing, you know, yeah. with your video on the reverse image. Um, and that's weird, but <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you don't have the audience vibing with you. <laughs> it's, you know, but ultimately I was able to think, I think I was able to use it for good rather than evil. I mean, it, cause that's the thing. Look, a, a lot of people were jumping on and doing live shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, just, it, it feels like people that listen to you have such a deeper emotional connection to you. Um, and that, you know, and based on these comments and other things and people I know and, and like, have you been confronted with that before by, you know, someone after a show or, you know, where someone is like telling you what a song means to them and you're yeah. like, dude, I was, it's I was really heavy. Chips. It's really yeah. heavy that like your song got me through cancer or your music got me through right? this and, 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 uh, or I almost killed myself and, um, then I, you know, rebuilt my life and your music helped me do that. It's like, that's, uh. It's a little hard to know what to say in the moment to that that those kind of sure. things, but uh, it sh- certainly is. It helps when you're you know uh, running on fumes and and wondering what you're doing, and you know it certainly helps to hear that stuff. Yeah, I mean, because I assume you probably don't think everything you're writing is this form of divine inspiration, but I, it sounds like to many people this is like a heavy heavy part of their of their life and a very deep emotional connection to yeah it's funny like when people talk about the last decade or more of like music being increasingly devalued uh as a Mm. commodity or and and you feel like you feel that in in hollywood too it's like it's pretty um that the the that world lets you know pretty clearly that it's not worth that much sometimes (laughs) um very diplomatic in, way to in, in a uh <laughs> on the, on the on the open uh market on the commodities market of of ideas sure. and and things that you can um quantify um but my point is um i don't know how many people say you know that so and such and such actors performance in this tv show like got them through cancer or something maybe they do but i, I don't know it's it's uh so it, it means it, it it connects with people on a, on a deeper level, perhaps for the very reason that it is is hard to quantify. Yeah, I mean, especially because it, depending on, I mean, it, it's passive and active engagement, right? Like right. it's driving in the car with you know memories associated by all of that stuff, or it's you know sitting and, and listening to it, or being at a show. I mean, generally that doesn't that doesn't seem to happen very often with uh, with actors. Like they don't go and perform a movie. Right. And you don't have it on. I mean, maybe some people like for the office where it's, they just turn it on and they fall asleep. Right. But I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. But I, th- I think with, with you, it, especially because of the, your tenure, um, you know, where like people like my age, I'm 36, almost 37. And I remember, you know, I remember mysterious production of eggs. I remember, you know, all these other, like seeing you on tour multiple times and like where I was at that time mm-hmm. also shaped how I heard these songs. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I try sometimes to reconnect to what music felt like when I was in that, you know, teens, early 20s, the sort of mix of like how it kind of just uh, bled into, it blurred the lines of of sensory th- things like... um what you were going through at the time, what the general sights and smells were at the time, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and how it kind of felt different than it feels now back then. It was like, uh, 
I don't know how to describe it. I, 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 I think of it in terms of like lightness and dark and colors and, and atmospheres and emotions. And then it, I think at some point I just, that was in this phase when I was a student, I was soaking things up. I was feeling things in a different way. And then at some, some point as a musician, like you just, you just become it, you know, you just become that thing. And then you have a little trouble feeling it the way you felt it before, you know. When was that point for you? Oh, probably around 26 or 27. So when I, okay. I switched from, from like just a ravenous consumer kind of approach to music, um, where I would go into a record store and I was like, what can I discover today? Like, this is, you know, <laughs> um, and taking chances on things and, and, and the exploratory process and then the, like it being the soundtrack to your life kind of drama. Um, it around 26 to 27, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm full. I've been just eating since I was a little kid and now I'm like full and I'm ready to, um, become it, the thing that I've been eating. Yeah. You know? So you were, you were somewhat aware of this when this happened, right? No, not really. Just in, (laughs) I look back in retrospect and I think, um, yeah, that was about the point when I stopped walking into record stores thinking of like, what can I consume and ingest and 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 regurgitate and became right. just uh you know uh some sort of you know uh how should i describe just like i started dig- you know digging you know letting things kind of just come out of me that were just a amalgam of all my experiences you know right right with with the new album so it's called inside problems mm-hmm. and um the biggest thing is like you know and especially some of the other stuff i read is people are talking about these your obsessive middle of the night thoughts. Yeah. Are you, uh, do you consider yourself a night owl? No, this is just insomnia. Um, oh, that's pure, a real thing. Pure Holy and shit. Okay. Yeah. No, this is just like lying there. I mean, most of this album was written in a horizontal nocturnal, um, state, um, captive audience, not many distractions, but you just can't sleep. So, um, are you doing okay now? Yeah, no, I'm still, I'm still have terrible time sleeping. Um, are you serious worse, Wait, what's worse, what's your sleep routine walk me through this you're winding down it's winding been a long down night. i read uh no screen what are you reading i'm reading underworld by don delillo uh right now okay which is a little uh a little heavy yeah i'm not sure I, i'm not sure I, i'm <laughs> totally enjoying it but um but i did, I did every night i read from like nine to ten thirty and then okay then I, so ten thirty is lights out yeah you you got the cup of water by your bed yeah you got a noise machine? Uh, yeah, I got a fan just to kind of, that's, okay. yeah. And, uh, and then around two in the morning, I'm just up from two to four or something, just lying there trying to sleep, trying to breathe, um, to meditate. But when I've got songs going, I can always just kind of pull them out and play the melody back in my head and, you know, let the, the chatter that's going on in my head be directed towards, um, the process of finding the right words to fit fit the melody and that usually during this whole uh last two or three years that was kind of my meditation of sorts that helped me at least put those inner demons to work um, right to towards something useful because it's like you know you're and when you really have bad insomnia you're like oh my god this is like total total waste of time i'm just lying here i'm not gonna get up you know and might as well, like, how can I turn this into something useful? 
I, there's something, there's a little bit more of the onion to peel here in the sense that like you, you use the phrase waste of time. Like, do you feel that if you're not being productive, you're not accomplishing something? No, but um, when you get in the, that nocturnal state, things are, get really negative really quick and get kind of spiral pretty quick. And uh, something about that time of night is just doesn't lead to good thoughts. So it is the music have like redemptive qualities then for you? For sure. It's just a magnet for, I don't, I don't know if magnet is the right word. It's just like a, it's definitely uh, focuses my thoughts in the right direction and pull, right. pulls me out of that tailspin. What's your family think about this? Are they just like, dad's doing his thing again? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, they, they get a little annoyed by my nocturnal habits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrestled a little bit with insomnia stuff and most of it had to do with, um, ahem, the current state of the world. I mean, that, mm. that, that wasn't that great, especially yeah. when the, in the pandemic. I mean, do you remember, were you like sanitizing your groceries? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, were you leaving your boxes out there? Uh, weren't we all? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was. It, looking back, it's like the virus is like hundreds of times more contagious than it was back then. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and yet we were going for hikes with our masks on and stuff, you know. Yeah. It's hard to you know, even think of that time. But, um, but no, it was, that that's part of it is like i wasn't traveling i wasn't touring and uh there was quite there was probably the most stable routine life i've had for 25 years in the last couple of years yet mm. there was this this like um you know menace outside our doors you know in the middle of the yeah. night you know and and lots of time to wrestle with our our internal um voices so. Yeah. Yeah. We had a COVID move. We, we were, I was, I was living in New York mm-hmm. for the past 16 some odd years, but now, uh, I definitely feel the, the, the suffering of like, and not being connected to like the energy of New York at all times, mm. even the things that are annoying and shitty, like public transit or, you know, $9 strawberries, or, I mean, just like stupid things like that. But where aren't those things just distractions? I mean, when I lived in New York, I found it kind of hard to work and hard to write because there's always literally and figuratively like the sign the neon sign says come in here and like yeah everywhere you go it's like there's that energy that people speak of i see is like an obstacle but you well you were in new york for a long time right only three years oh okay i thought you were there a lot longer yeah. my bad no. yeah yeah were you were you where were you were you in the village the east village yeah uh west village okay yeah so at least you got pretty people outside your window <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was it's funny. It's like uh growing up in the Midwest, I was then suddenly being in the West Village, I was like, Wow, is this is there a costume party going on? It's like nope. Or is this like people really or is this like really New England? It's you'd see like the tennis sweaters and the, Oh yeah. It's like de- dead poet society everywhere. Yeah, and, that's true. <laughs> those are those are like, trust fund kids. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't think anyone actually dressed like that. Oh yeah, they're they're out there. They're they're very yeah. much out there. There's even brands that, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the brand Rowing Blazers, but it is a brand that, you know, has really tried to subvert the idea of what Ivy style is and what prep is and to try to make it accessible and, you know, exciting for and available for for everyone no matter what their 
socioeconomic background is and also kind of, you know, postmodernism critique on it and the fact that like, let's just subvert all this and make it crazy. And now it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I walk out my door and see Tom Brown's bare ankles and his dust. And, oh, so you were near you know. Cafe Clooney then? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, there you go. That was his his signature. I used to work for Tom, so yeah, his his signature white toast and coffee. And mm-hmm. by the way, white toast at Cafe Clooney, that's like sixteen dollars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where are you in LA now? In uh, on the east east side. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, w- when you were doing your 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 home your home shows, you had like mm-hmm. the crew. I mean, you had Heidecker in there and Zach and all them. How did you mm-hmm. become friends with those guys? Uh, Zach, I became friends with cuz I lived in his house in Venice. First time I came to LA in like 2008. Mm-hmm. I I rented his bungalow in Venice and lived there for uh 7 months or something like that. Okay. So he he was my landlord, but um but we hung out and did some stuff together and uh he's a lovely man. And uh yeah, I I was always a huge fan of uh Tim and Eric, but I met um Tim uh Heidecker. Heidecker. Um, just, you know, just being around. I mean, there's a lot of interesting people in LA, I have to say. Um, it's, uh, I've been here for about 10 years and it's, it was a good move. I, I, we've really been happy here. Are you a lifer? I don't know if I'm a lifer, but, but we're in a good place here. Yeah. 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 Cause you, I mean, you, you're there with your, your wife and your, your family. And mm-hmm. I mean, that must've been really nice. I mean, there's something that not to go back to the pandemic, but like in hindsight, it was, it was beautiful in a way to kind of magnify parts of us that we generally compartmentalize and, and, uh, you know, in our professional careers. Yeah. I mean, we, we got into some nice, nice routines where our son was kind of the house DJ and playing, playing music all day long. And, um, he got really into John Cale. Oh, wow. Okay. Lou, Lou Reed, and he was just playing that stuff all the time. And it's funny, like the idea that, that your, your offspring is then becomes enough of a, a, a little individual to then influence you, you know, that I'm like, wow, I never really listened to this John Cale record in, in such depth. There's some really great things in here. It was like, I, I can't say that that didn't have an effect on this album. Really? That's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I think, like, I, I am so excited for that. Like, m- my daughter recently discovered the Beatles. And, um, I mean, obviously, because I was playing it instead of the Sing 2 soundtrack. Um, right. And she, you know, she heard Bungalow Bill. And, and I was like, man, I was like, the White Album is like a kid's album. I mean, there's some dark stuff in there. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah. like, Bungalow Bill and... Uh, Rocky Raccoon. Yeah, Rocky Raccoon and Honey Pie and all this stuff. And... Yeah. She, uh, you know, I've, I'm not like a big radio guy, but one of my buddies, uh, who used to run pitchfork was like, Oh, he's like, you should put on like Sirius XM radio in your car. It's great to just like have somebody else like kind of curate your music feed instead of an algorithm. And I'm like, okay. Mm. And so we were listening to the Beatles station and the next song they played was let it be. And we're driving to her daycare, which is not too far from Mm. us. And she hears Let It Be and she's like, what's this song called? It's like, oh, it's called Let It Be. And she's like, what's it about? And I was like, uh, and I'm like, shit, I don't know. I'm like, it's about, you know, yeah. being happy. And, and, you know, so I like make up this thing and she's like, oh, okay. And we get to the parking lot and we're, you know, it's, we're at like the solo, kind of like the breakdown part of this. And, um, yeah. she, I'm getting ready to turn the car off and, uh, she's like, dad, wait, like, can we, can we finish the song? You know, she's like, can we finish it when you pick me up? And I'm like, do you want to finish it now? She was like, yeah. 
And so I like pulled her up in my lap and we sat and we listened to the rest of this Let It Be song. And I looked over at her and she was like getting emotional. And it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever experienced in my life is like, holy cow, I get to introduce music and music that is is important to me to my daughter. And like, it feels like she's really processing this and she's four. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand why, why a lot of parents are like, um, oh, my kids listen to, you know, total crap, (laughs) like top 40. And I was like, well, why did you let that happen? (laughs) They're living it. You don't have to be like militant and, and oppressive of them to just put on the music you like they're just gonna they're living in your universe at least for the first 10 years sure sure so it's your fault (laughs) if they go astray i mean yeah every time we'd go to like a birthday party there was just the automatic my my son would get really mad he's like why do they automatically play this crappy music Um, what is it like baby shark because because they think they think it's what kids like no it's it's more like uh you know ariana grande or whatever sure it's just you know um Max it's, Martin it's hits. Not necessarily, yeah. Um and he would he would get more uh incensed about it than I than I I would. I mean, but um he's just yeah, why? Do they think we're because they just think we're kids and that's what we like. We like the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And uh um anyway, is but I, I mean I guess I was like that a little bit. The sometimes the flip side is when you're younger and you do like certain types of music, you can be a little more militant or dogmatic about it you know, then what now I'm a little, I'm a lot more lax about yeah that stuff. But I will say in, anyway. the good thing that's happened more or less now is when you look at like the biggest kids movies, other than like Disney Pixar stuff, right? Like Encanto, mm-hmm. those songs slap like that, that. I mean, the, we don't talk about Bruno is freaking masterpiece, but like listening to, you know, she, she saw sing too. And mm-hmm you know, the main song is you 2 from Joshua Tree, like still haven't found what I'm looking for. And uh, mm-hmm. she was like, what song? Like, this is incredible. And I'm like, let me show you the original song. And I played it for her and she sat there and listened, you know, we listened to Joshua mm-hmm. Tree and like, I'm like, okay. So at least in this case, some of these kids movies are, are somewhat steering kids into like, in my opinion, like, you know, excellent music versus, you know, hook hook uh baby shark sort of stuff yeah yeah i mean he's still like they're still kids and they like fun tune like he likes do the humpty hump and, yeah you know <laughs> you know just <laughs> really appropriate stuff but yeah um you know they it's not like um he's a total snob or anything it's just yeah is he aware of your music and you i mean yeah um yeah he's there i mean they both get tired of of listening to my songs around the house. Um, and I don't blame them because it's when you're trying to finish an album, you got to listen to stuff sure. so many times. And they're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, and he's also like, uh, this is another just wild thing that's maybe coming, you know, is uh, he's plays, he plays guitar and he's become like a John Fahey, like finger style guitar aficionado. Wow. Um, and so he's constantly criticizing my guitar playing <laughs> you know, he's he just turned 11 you know and he's he's like i'm about to go on tour and i'm like wow if he's at the show i'm gonna feel self-conscious <laughs> because i can't play you know i spent my whole life mastering the violin i'm not gonna like just in principle i don't i i refuse to learn how to play bar chords or how to play like a alternating sure thumb finger picking like i just can't 
sorry, I spent enough time suffering over this other instrument. I'm not going to try to figure out how to separate my thumb from my fingers, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, but it's, yeah, it's fun. I'm like legitimately like self-conscious about my guitar playing. Oh man, that's incredible. So I'll, he'll be at the first show of this tour. So I'll be like, oh God, you know, <laughs> I'm playing for him. Now what warms my heart is that he'll walk through the living room. He's commandeered all my guitars now. I don't, I don't even have, won't know what to play anymore because he's all in these open tunings that I don't understand. Dad, Gad, what are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah. But he, he just walks through the living room and picks up the Martin and starts playing, you know, some John Fahey tune just for the sake of, not because it's practice time or anything, just because this is what he does and it makes him feel good. Right. But I don't, I don't go in there like, yeah, <laughs> like, um, I just, I have to really just stay in the other room and just, you know, appreciate that, that that's happening from afar. But, yeah. and, and that it, that, you know, whatever he does in life, that he'll be able to come home from like a hard day and pick up a guitar on the cut and sit on the couch for an hour and like get some satisfaction on, off from it. You know? Yeah. Well, what an incredible gift you've given him. That's so fantastic. I don't know. I mean, I didn't really have to do that much. That's what I makes mean, it a gift. You, you just, yeah. it just happened. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, on your your acting career, because you, mm -hmm. you you're you're going full David Bowie here. Um, do you do you see yourself doing more stuff on screen? Yeah, I I would like to. It's it's really challenging, and it's kind of, still it's kind of an unknown for me. Um, it's still I look at people's actors' performances, and I'm like, how do you do that? Like, still like I can learn my lines and try to act natural and i mean you like, were incredible in fargo i didn't even realize it was you until i was like holy shit that is andrew Bird. um i i felt like i did a passable job you know but it was it was cool it was fun it's it was it was uh anything any project where i'm like don't know what i'm doing i'm i love you know mm. yeah any anything that puts me in a in that state of of like can i do this or not you know it's it's that's fun to me. Well, at least you got the the homies around you who also have tons of acting experience you can hit up. Yeah, I did. I had a lot of time before Fargo started filming to like freak out and <laughs> go around and ask for advice. And, you know, no one no one gave me any satisfactory advice that put put me at ease, you know. Like, really? Everyone I don't know, maybe they just keep thing, their cards close to their chest or something. Like I don't know <laughs> what it is. But or they they're like okay he's he's trying to get into our territory thinks thinks it's going to be easy and and they don't want to <laughs> they don't want it to be easy or something but no one likes gave me any nuts and bolts you know uh, except for Noel Hawley the creator of the Fargo series oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he just said look you're you're a father you you this character is a father that's worried about his kids um, you'll be fine and it's just like you it'll be really straightforward it's like you walk over to a window look out the window you say the line and then you go over here and you put a bottle down and you turn off a light and you say the line and it says it's really not much more complex and that's what all the actors that i like john c Riley. i would ask about it because i was you know i was very freaked out about this whether i would be able to you, you can you just see it when 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 someone's not an actor and there's a sort of woodenness and a the dead eyes, the hollow <laughs> eyes that you're afraid you're going to have. Um, and John was just like, oh, yeah, just don't, don't underestimate the power of good editing. 
<laughs> he says, I've, I've done a bunch of movies where I thought I did a terrible job. And then I see it and I'm like, wow, there's real chemistry there. And it's probably just the editing. And it's just like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, well, when, anytime you go into something like that, you just want someone to t- give you instructions, you know? Sure. Sure. Well, it's, so, I mean, it sounds know. like you, it worked. I mean, obviously, I mean, I saw it. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. it's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I'd, I'm just waiting for a decent uh, part to come along to do it again. That's that's awesome. And you're scoring music too, which I think is such a it's such a, a lost art. I feel like people have been like, yeah, there's John Williams, and in, in terms of just like you know Americans that score music, I mean, it's yeah. it's it's incredible. Uh, yeah, the, it's it's become a different beast these days, where the score is less and less um, a feature, and it's more about uh, who's DJing the rec- the 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 movie, you know. Well, wait, that there's a music supervisor for that. I mean, you're still is, making yeah. original music. I mean, this is no, no, no. There is, but it's not but compared to the, like the the John Williams and and Elmer Bernstein and all that. You know, yeah, the, yeah. the the real classic era of film score. Okay, I understand. Uh, now. Work. It's it's a it's a different beast now. Yeah, you're like share. You're sharing the the real estate with with a lot of other elements. Right. Um, uh, but it's. You know, if it's the right project and the right director, it can be really fun and gratifying, and and other times it can be soul destroying. <laughs> That's a pretty polar extreme there. It's just I I'm not pulling any punches here. It's it can be it. I you keep having to talk to yourself like I'm just lucky to be making music. <laughs> That's what you're telling yourself. Just lucky to, that this is my job and I get to do this. But sure. you cannot go into film score and have the same kind of mindset you have when you make your own albums oh absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean johnny greenwood talked a little bit about that you know obviously because he's been work, working with pta for yeah. ages and obviously radiohead is there's there's some similarities there but i mean you know and paul thomas anderson's talked about how there was a, a serious push and pull to pull something out of him sure stuff yeah yeah um so the new album, you got a lot of big suits. You got some big fits here. Are you are you a clothes guy? I know your wife is a fashion designer. I've always been since I was l- real little, like uh, kind of a clothes horse. It's it's. I don't know if I'm proud of that or not, but it's it's just it's just who I am. Welcome I mean, I to would, the show. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, when I would go, just go to the local shoe store to pick out my Buster Browns. I would that would be like really exciting to me and. Uh, and then, you know, I got into my bohemian phase when I was, you know, 17 to through okay. my 20s. And I was, it was all thrift store and, um, or my grandpa's old clothes. Yeah. And, uh, and I, 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 you know, sort of shunned, uh, you know, the, the high fashion world for a decade or so. But then, uh, I kind of came back. Yeah. What's, what are your fits like these days? Um, I like, um, certain designers are go-tos, uh, to get their basics. Like I don't, I don't like, I, you can probably tell I don't like loud clothes, but I like nicely tailored, uh, clothes. So like Dries is a nice solid, uh, okay. go-to, um, for like, yeah, I, they, that, that stuff fits well. Um, I say Dries, but it, to me, that's like the equivalent of saying you like to read and you love Faulkner. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the prime. It's the creme de la creme. Dries is, is flawless. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty good stuff. Um, <laughs> but I always go for like just the super, um, you know, on tour, I, I have a black suit and a white, white suit. 
Did you have multiples though? I mean, because you you know you get you get active on that stage. Uh, yeah, I, I tend to wear the maybe two or three jackets. Okay. Um, and yeah, I've got like a I wear like a white cream Celine jacket with like a black shirt underneath, or I wear a black jacket with a you know white shirt and black tie, and that's kind of my thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's very that's very nice. It's like it, for your day to day stuff though. Do you? You know, do you care as much about that? I mean, what you're wearing right now looks looks incredible. The the nice sort of soft shoulder sport coat there. It looks like a heavy uh, denim yeah, coat. Yeah, I still wear like jackets, but I wear like unstructured, um, yeah, jackets. Uh, and yeah, just you know, um, but I even during the pandemic, I couldn't bring myself to wear sweats. Like I do not or shorts that much. Even though I live in LA, I don't I don't like super casual sportswear. Whoa! It just, just doesn't feel right on me. Well, so respect, is it I just jeans? I don't respect myself. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm, is it just jeans? Yeah, it's jeans or um, or uh, chinos or or uh, my wife makes like this mm-hmm. is one of her shirts. So like these, um, what's the chambray? Blue? Chambray. Yeah. She makes these really nice chambray shirts, and then she made at one point she worked with like this Japanese factory in LA to make. Uh, basic white black and gray tees so i have a lifetime supply of of these t-shirts so i'm usually i'm wearing a black t-shirt and jeans or chinos so it is casual i still wear casual clothes it's just you know just not sweats yeah i mean and that's it's not it's not very la i would say i mean you're you still got the east coast you know i mean even then like your i mean your jacket and everything i mean this is we're we're just chatting on 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 (laughs) like a on a podcast and and you look great you know i mean i've done press tours for like you know marvel folks and you're just like oh okay <laughs> yeah right yeah i don't know i i really um enjoy that just getting dressed for the show is like a ceremonious yeah thing that says like this thing's about to happen it's in a way it's not so much about my image that i'm presenting it's more about like acknowledging or honoring that that this is like an important thing i'm about to do so I got to go, I got to change, you know, I got to get dressed for the big show. Absolutely. And, um, and I guess I'm not like, uh, I guess I'm not like the way I dress on stage is not like, um, I'm just like you <laughs> in the audience. It's, it's, it's the point is I was actually, I'm not like you, which is why you came to the show. Um, but, uh, yeah. So the, the, you know, grunge or like the, or what I've never understood is like, the comedian look. Oh, what's the comedian look? You, know? you mean like George Carlin, all black sort of thing? No, like most like comedians, and I, I know a lot of comedians and play a lot of shows with comedians, but it's like, what's up with like, this is more so in like, was defined the mm-hmm. 90s comedy club world, but like, is it like a, a intentional thing to try to look like your audience? Like to, like the gap, <laughs> untucked, unbuttoned uh, shirt, or maybe just, just the t-shirt and you know, it's just absolutely, you know, just really almost no style. Shots whatsoever. fired. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think you're referring to the concept of like really dressing for the occasion, right? I mean, yeah, I think yeah. some people where it's, you're right. There, there is a bit of an attitude of trying to, to play down your look, you know, and then you have some people who have just like a uniform. Like Chappelle goes on stage is in a uniform. He even puts his freaking initial yeah. on his shirt, which fine, I guess. Yeah, it depends on the type type of comedian i guess i'm thinking like the like your typical um your largo comedian guy that that tells jokes about 
pizza and boners and stuff. Like, <laughs> like you're not going to wear a, a, a sharp suit and, and, true. and tell kind of, uh, you know, scatological jokes. Yeah, they'll, they'll fall a little bit flat if you're wearing a Celine jacket <laughs> talking about a boner. I, I wholeheartedly yeah. hear you. <laughs> um, a friend of mine told me that one of the things he loves the most about your music, and he says this as a compliment, is he said, you guy, uh, Andrew Bird is the Eames chair of music. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? In the sense that it is like, it's a high art form. It's appreciated mm. in every situation. Uh, but it's also like classic at the same time. Okay. And that being said, I know you, you're, you're a big fan of some incredible, beautiful furniture. I mean, you got the George Nelson desk, the Rhythm chairs, the USM Howler. When, when did you get into that? Um, probably in New York when we were kind of nesting there. Right. And having, having, uh, starting a family there. Um, though, uh, yeah, it start. I mean, the speaking of the Eames chair, it, it kind of goes back to when I was on, I was on Fat Possum Records, and uh, hell yeah, um, Matthew, the head of the label, um, he he's a real character. And uh, after this is maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I was just on tour forever, and I almost died. I just went through like five courses of antibiotics, like had perpetual bronchitis. I was just like a mess. Oh my god. Okay, you're not I kidding. F- I finally was done, and he was like, he was aware of how how burnt out I was, and he bought me an Eames chair and said, and it showed up in my apartment. This is in Chicago, and he says, I think you've earned the right to to sit down for a bit. Wow! And no one at in any labels ever done that, you know, that kind of gesture. Um, so I felt bad when I left that place. <laughs> But uh, I, I'm sure they, 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 they made money off you. You're, you're good. The, the exchanges, yeah, yeah. you're fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but um, that was the first nice, nice piece I had. Um, but yeah, you know, it was early in our marriage, we're trying to figure out cause my wife's a designer. Yeah. So, but then I was kind of going crazy going out there and getting stuff that was kind of a little more industrial uh, from the industrial revolution, sort of repurposed stuff. Okay. Know? She's like, what? Like, stop. What are you doing? Like, this is, <laughs> she, she's, she's like, I'm the designer and you can't go off and get like, you know, something that's, um, was pulled out of a, a factory from the 19th century. But I mean, it's, it's my wife and I are like that too, in the sense we both have a very strong opinion of how we want our home and our environment to look, you know, right. like I love like Vitsu shelves and Eames and, you know, like the, the sort of classic stuff. And my wife yeah. is like very bright. You know, she used to work for Etsy. She loves anything that's more handmade, bright colors, crochet. Right. Um, the, I mean, the joke of like put a bird on it is, is you know, I, I think at one point she very much was into that idea. You know, the letterpress drawer that's hanging on the yeah, wall yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, we clashed hard. I mean, I think we found a good common ground now, but yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, just, just in that she felt like I was kind of running away with it. Uh it, and she was, you know, pregnant, not not able to compete with me going out there and <laughs> getting furnishing our apartment. So she like panicked a little bit, but uh, right, uh, we, we're good. We're now we're pretty on the, pretty much on the same page. Yeah, I mean, at least the stuff that you were getting is all like MoMA like stuff. They're all classic pieces. That's yeah, you know, it's 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 good stuff to invest in. Yeah, 
I mean, I think like an Eames Lounge Ottoman is like eight grand now. I mean, they just, they're like Rolex. They, Herman Miller just kind of like slowly raises their prices every year or two. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely pricey. But yeah. I think I was more, I think I'm more of a, in the past, a little more like into the older shit, you know, the, the, and we, in our apartment in New York, uh, I had these eight foot tall speakers, the, these Victrola speakers that, oh, that I played, yeah. played through sitting in our apartment. She wasn't too thrilled about that either. <laughs> it's like, you know, she, she's into things that are a little more neutral. That was definitely like not neutral. Yeah. She wants the wall mounted Sonos or something like that. <laughs> not even, no. Um, <laughs> But uh, but you have yeah. a pretty legit hi-fi setup, right? I mean, you got, you know, what are they, like, Tenoise or something? And- um, I, I have these NOLA speakers that I got in New York. So, yeah, part of my wife's dowry was, <laughs> was uh, to go shopping with my father-in-law, who's an audiophile. So, Congratulations. Th- instead of, like, a fancy watch as the new son-in-law, I got a, a Macintosh. Um, amp. So, do you, you know, like I think for me, I've really tried to rediscover physical media, like physical CDs and stuff yeah. like that. But I still find myself going to the convenience of it. But like getting something like a Macintosh mm. uh, amplifier or, you know, even just buying like a nice DAC, it, it's just a game changer. Yeah. 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 I, I still listen to CDs and I, don't really like I, yeah i don't trust algorithms just in principle yeah or, uh i get it you know that it that it makes things easier when you have a dinner party but i still play still play uh vinyl records that when we have people over and and if i'm feeling lazy i'll put a cd on okay. that's <laughs> you know um, yeah what's what's your what's your dinner party record that you play uh i really like this um uh, it never fails. It's this Angola '60s um, compilation from Angola uh, from Analog Africa. So oh it's wow! Yeah, Angolan dance band music from from the '60s and '70s. Um, so it's kind of a mix. It sounds a little bit Brazilian because it's got the Portuguese mm-hmm. in there and the Portuguese uh, Brazilian influence, but it's wet West African rhythm section, and it's just uh, with the sort of fado melodies, but with like a amazing rhythm section underneath it's just really kick-ass music but it, it works it underneath a party right yeah. right and um what do you, what are you most looking forward to to touring again because i know i mean you're about to hit the road well what's kind of cool is rolling off the bus at like 10 in the morning and then having till four o'clock in it in a city to just sort of kick around um yeah that's kind of a major major luxury um that i see now like right for a while um you know going on tour was was very it always always is physically demanding and mentally demanding and exhausting and everything but now with family life going on tour is kind of also like a vacation because you have a day (laughs) you have a day sheet that says you need to be here and here and at this time and you have a job to do you know how to do that job and it's exciting to do your job and then it's done and you feel like i did it I did the stuff, everything that was on the day sheet, and now I just fall asleep on the bus and wake up in a different city. And there you go. Thank you, tour manager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it wasn't always that easy. It wasn't always that fun, but, um, but it's gotten to a point now where it's, it's, um, 
there's some nice nice perks to it and so yeah kicking around it's like i bring a bike and i ride around you know whatever city until soundcheck and nice and of course the performance itself that that i miss that a lot yeah yeah that energy sort of exchange mm-hmm. there well i'm psyched i'm congrats again on the album it's fantastic thank you um, you know probably another grammy nomination who knows i'm not holding my breath but sure <laughs> sure thanks so much andrew it's great to meet yeah, you. yeah good to meet you too that's it for our show andrew bird's new album inside problems is out now and available everywhere visit andrewbird.net for shows and more info he's also touring with another favorite band of mine iron and wine so look out folks You've been listening to Blamo. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Do whatever it is you do when you like a podcast. Follow us on Instagram for all the hot content at Blamo Podcast. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Call us at 917-267-2495. Leave us a message and we'll put it in a future episode. Or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. If you want to hang out with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo where we have tons of exclusive episodes, also exclusive shows like the Triple J Show and Blamo Presents Derek Guy Die Workwear. Uh, We also have our amazing Slack community. Yeah. Anyway, that's it from me. I'll see you all soon.